This is Democracy. A podcast about the people of the United States. A podcast about citizenship. About engaging with politics and the world around you. A podcast about educating yourself on today's important issues. And how to have a voice in what happens next. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. Today, we're going to discuss the uh, release of a recent draft Supreme Court uh, decision. It's not a final decision in any way, but it is a draft written by Justice Samuel Alito, which seems to indicate that the Supreme Court is poised to overturn uh, the Roe v. Wade decision of 1973, which created a constitutional right uh, for women to uh, have access to abortions, at least at some point during their pregnancies. And um, this uh, draft memo was leaked in a way that's really quite uh, unprecedented for the court, and it has raised uh, a great deal of concern in many circles in our society about the future of women's uh, access to abortion, about constitutional law, about the (laughs) nature of the Supreme Court. And we are fortunate to be joined today by my colleague and friend, uh, who I'm sure is known to many of you. He's been on our podcast before. He's one of the foremost thinkers and writers in America today on the Supreme Court and on constitutional law. This is, uh, as I said, my colleague and friend, uh, Professor Stephen Vladek. Steve, thanks for joining us again. Of course, Jeremy. Always a pleasure to, to be with you guys. I, we, we need better circumstances, though. I know. I hope we can have you on at, at a time of celebration, not just a time of tragedy in the future. Uh, Steve holds the Charles Allen Wright Chair in Federal Courts at the University of Texas School of Law. And his fields of expertise cover federal courts, constitutional law, national security law, and military justice. He's argued before the U.S. Supreme Court. I'm very jealous about that. I've never, as a historian, had an opportunity to do that. He's argued before the Texas Supreme Court and various lower federal civilian and military courts and has testified between uh, before numerous congressional committees and executive branch agencies and commissions and has served as an expert witness both in U.S. state and federal courts. Uh, he's the host uh, with uh, another colleague of ours, Professor uh, Bobby Chesney of the popular award-winning National Security Law Podcast. And many of you, I'm sure, have seen Steve on CNN, where he's a lead Supreme Court analyst. He's written a number of books, many seminal articles, and he has a forthcoming book on the shadow docket, which I'm sure uh, many of you will be interested in reading. And we'll certainly have Steve on to talk about that in the future. Uh, Before we get to our discussion with Steve about uh, the recent happenings at the Supreme Court, we have, of course, uh, Mr. Zachary's poem. What's your poem today, Zachary? My poem is actually a poem that I read, uh, I think, six months ago or so when we did a similar topic uh, with the same guest. uh, uh, As this decision was so last minute, I didn't really have time to write a separate poem for this episode, but I think, I, I hope it'll still be relevant. It's called The Right to Choose. The law is like a chocolate orange that splits with the sweat of children's hands into a million symmetrical pieces distributed unevenly across the living room by the soft power of the puppy dog eyes, by the power of the tantrum or the shoe thrown sideways at a sibling or a pet. And when unpeeled and licked down, the law is tart. It is the sour we run through orchards to pick off trees, the bitterness we chase down supermarket aisles to taste. But, and keep this in mind, like the child that cradles it attentively, it has a tendency to melt, 
a propensity to phase change in the middle of our merriment. It is the fascination we take out of our pocket, maybe a couple days later, indistinguishable from the cold and manufactured wrapping paper, the treat that can no longer be unfolded or reshuffled or reimagined because it's already chosen. It makes its decisions without our input. It reserves the right to choose. I think the second time through that poem is even better, Zachary. Uh, you've done 194 poems. I think it's the first time you've actually repeated one. It's, it's, not, <laughs> one a bad, of the first it's not a bad president. Uh, what's your poem about? My poem is about the fickleness of the law and the ways in which our legal system here in the United States can often make some very dumb decisions. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. All right. Well, <laughs> it's, it's apropos. <laughs> yes, it is. So, uh, Steve, as a historian uh, who's followed the Supreme Court, I have to say I've never seen anything like this. I've never seen the leaking of uh, or remember reading about the leaking of an opinion like this. I, I don't remember reading about uh, a draft opinion that so seems to so clearly overturns 50 years of practice. Uh, is this new territory we're in, Steve? Yes and no. I mean, I think it, it, it would help to sort of, I think, differentiate between what's new here and what's not. So um, leaking actually is more common in the Supreme Court's history than I think a lot of folks appreciate or might even expect. Um, you know, there are documented leaks of the sort of substance of Supreme Court rulings going back to even before the Civil War. Um, it's fairly well known, for example, that you know, Chief Justice Taney even plotted with President Buchanan about when to hand down the Dred Scott decision. Um, you know, Franklin Delano Roosevelt was tipped off that the Japanese internment decisions were coming by Felix Frankfurter. Even Roe, I mean, Roe, Time Magazine famously ran a headline about what the result was in Roe and what the vote was in Roe a week before the decision actually was handed down. So, you know, leaking out of the court is not unheard of. What is so stunning about what happened on Monday night is, you know, we have never seen a draft opinion leak, um, right? That all the prior leaks have been sort of secondhand, you know, hearsay about the result and maybe the vote count. Um, but nothing like 97 pages of draft analysis where, you know, Jeremy, folks like you and me can sort of tear into the actual substance of the draft and see exactly what the court, you know, at least initially agreed to do. And, you know, I think that would have been stunning in any case. And I think it's especially stunning in this case, given the enormity and the gravity of the issue presented and of the apparent move the court or at least five of the justices are willing to make. So just to understand the basics of this, Steve, does this draft opinion necessarily reflect five justices' views on the issue? Um, not necessarily. I mean, so to sort of, you know, to put all of this in context and, you know, and it helps that the court confirmed the authenticity of the draft. Um, so we don't have to speculate about whether this is real anymore. Um, the way it usually works at the Supreme Court is after oral argument, the justices all meet in conference where they vote sort of tentatively on how they think the case should come out. Um, and so that would have happened in the Dobbs case back in December. Argument was December 1st. Um, the justices sat down to talk about it a few days later. And, you know, what happens at conference is presumably some majority emerges, um, however, tentatively. And based on that tentative majority, um, you know, the senior justice in the majority assigns the majority opinion to one of the justices in the majority. And the idea is that they'll go and write a draft 
and they'll see how the draft goes and they'll see if they can, you know, keep the justices who had voted that way at conference on side. Um, and so by all accounts, Jeremy, what happened here is that the vote at conference was five to four, at least with respect to overturning Roe and Casey. Um, it might have been six to three with regard to upholding this 15-week abortion ban with Chief Justice Roberts sort of splitting the difference. But so the vote was five to four on Roe and Casey. Probably that means Justice Thomas, the senior associate justice, um, after Chief Justice Roberts, assigned it to Justice Alito. And this is Alito's first draft. This is the opinion Alito would have circulated back in February, you know, to try to see, hey, you know, is everyone on, is everyone with me, right? Do I still have my majority? Um, and, you know, Jeremy, just to sort of put one sort of last point on it, and that's part of why I was so struck last night by the timing, because folks might wonder why, you know, a draft opinion that was circulated on February 10th would be leaked now. Well, this is exactly when you would expect concurrences or dissents to be circulating. Um, and so this is why, you know, sort of my theory for what happened um, is that there are folks in the majority, right, who are worried about one of the concurrences or dissents potentially peeling off a member of the majority um, and that that's what's going on here and that that's why this leaked. So so you think that this was leaked by someone in the majority or someone in the office of someone in the majority? Or someone sort of sympathetic to the, you know, close to someone in the majority. Because I just, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, let me, let me be clear. I'm speculating. But, you know, it would be very, if I were one of the liberal justices, first, I don't know what a leak accomplishes. I mean, the the justices in the, in the majority, they know what kind of backlash they're going to face. They're going to do this anyway. Um, but also, if I were going to leak Alito's draft opinion and I were one of the liberal justices, I would have done it the second it circulated, um, right? Because that's, that's the moment to strike. That's the moment to sort of start building up public momentum against this decision, this, this, you know, this draft opinion. Um, in contrast, right, why leak now in April? Well, you're leaking now in April, uh, in April or May because something has happened since, right, that has changed some feature of this draft opinion. And as I said, the best explanation is that something in the concurrence or dissents, you know, scared someone in the majority. I mean, let's just put this, you know, all on the table, right? Imagine if Chief Justice Roberts, no friend of abortion, um, wrote this scathing opinion, castigating the other conservative justices for damaging the institution, for unnecessarily overruling Roe when he actually would be saying, I can uphold the Mississippi law while leaving Roe and Casey intact. I could see a world, Jeremy, where there's another conservative justice who's worried that that would peel off Justice Kavanaugh. And then they lose their majority. So, you know, I, I don't know that this is coming from the right as opposed to the left, but the timing to me is the most telling feature of why, if I had to pick, right, it seems more likely to be coming from that side versus from the, you know, the likely dissenters. And how would leaking this help someone in the majority dissuade Justice Kavanaugh or someone else from leaving the majority? Yeah, I mean, I think because, you know, th this being out there makes it really, really hard now for someone like a Justice Kavanaugh to switch sides. Um, because because we all know, right? Because Jeremy, we all know that at conference he was a fifth vote to overrule Roe. We all know that he initially agreed, right, to join um, to join in this result, even if he never actually expressly endorsed Justice Alito's opinion. And so, you know, I think there's a pretty straightforward version of this story where leaking the opinion is designed basically to 
um, keep everybody on side to prevent to sort of build a record where if they were to switch sides, everyone would know that they switched sides. Um, and everyone would know that they were, you know, to use a term popular in right-wing social media, squishes. Right. But couldn't they just say they changed their mind as they always do on the court? Yes. But I think it's one thing, you know, it's one thing to say I changed my mind. It's another thing for it to happen now that the opinion's out, because now it would look like you're just completely bowing to public pressure. Um, right. And you're worried about being shunned on the cocktail party circuit. Um, and so, you know, I, I think that to me, that is the best rationale for why this would be out there versus, you know, the, the sort of the, the argument you hear from conservatives today, which is that some liberal justice, they all assume it's Sotomayor because they all can't stand Sotomayor, um, right? That a liberal justice or one of their clerks leaked it to put pressure on, you know, to create the sort of the reverse kind of pressure, to create public backlash that pushes, that, that fractures the majority. And again, I mean, Jeremy, to me, the, the best explanation against that is the timing. Like, why wait, you know, three months from when Alito circulated this draft, if that's your goal? Right. I guess the question would be who leaked it. It might be that the person who leaked it didn't have access to it in February and somehow received access to it now. Yeah, although I don't know, I, you know, it's hard, the way the Supreme Court works, it's hard to imagine how a first draft like that would have become available to someone now, but not when it was circulated in February. Right, right, unless it was shared with a third party, and then the third party uh, shared it with Politico. Yeah, and, and to be clear, I mean, I don't want to, you know, I, I, I fear that starting our conversation here, you know, sort of buries the lead. Um, because, you know, I mean, to me, the leak is a story. But of course, you know, what it portends is really the story. Um, and so, you know, the it, the inside sort of baseball of why this leaked and who leaked it and what are the clues about who leaked it, you know, I think those are interesting. I, th- I think those are important. I think they're actually incredibly significant from the perspective of the Supreme Court as an institution going forward. And yet, I think they are completely dwarfed by what it would mean if this is actually what we're getting when the formal decision comes out. So let, let's talk about that. I mean, it, it, one of the things that, that strikes me about this moment and reading, as I did quickly, the, the 97 pages, I'm sure you've read them more closely and you have much more expertise and background, but one of the things that struck me about them is Alito makes arguments that I find uh, often um, actually juvenile and superficial but, but be, and, and historically inaccurate in a few cases, but not surprising. I mean, I'm actually not surprised he's taken these positions. So what what is surprising to you about it? Um, I guess I am surprised by two things. I am surprised by how little he engages with the sort of contemporaneous evidence and the sort of the, the countervailing contemporaneous evidence about abortion practices at the time the 14th Amendment was adopted in 1868. Um, And, you know, Jeremy, I'm surprised at how superficial the sort of effort to say this is only about abortion um, in the opinion is. I mean, you know, at one point, Alito has this – there's in the draft opinion, there's this remarkable two-paragraph sequence where in the first paragraph he says, of course, we're only talking about abortion here, you know – um, when everyone says that this is just opening the door to scaling back all other kinds of substantive due process rights, um, when you know gay marriage, same-sex marriage, all this other stuff, you know, don't listen to them. We're really just focused on abortion. And then the very next paragraph, he talks about how, and the problem is that the right the court recognized in Rowan Casey is not deeply rooted in America's constitutional traditions and history. Well, <laughs> exactly. if that's the central problem, I have some other rights that are not similarly deeply rooted. 
But how can that argument have any legal merit when Roe has been precedent for almost 50 years? Yeah, I mean, you know, exactly. It's, it's the right it's the right question. And I think this is, you know, one might have expected a fuller-throated defense of wiping off the books, a case that's been around for 49 years. Indeed, you know, I, I think um, there's been a lot of uh, uh, sort of circulation today of a video from Justice Alito's confirmation hearings in you know late 05 or late 06, where he talked about how one of the one of the things that makes Roe such a powerful precedent is that the Supreme Court has reaffirmed it multiple times. Right, right. Um, so you know I, this is why I mean you know um, Barry Friedman from NYU and Dahlia Lithwick from Slate and I had a piece in the Washington Post that basically said you know what is most revealing about Justice Alito's opinion is how very little law there is in it. Um, and how this really is just basically a manifesto of, you know, grievances about everything that was wrong with Rowan Casey, um, as opposed to sort of a sophisticated piece of, you know, legal analysis for why this precedent that's been around for 49 years, that's been reaffirmed multiple times, you know, most recently two years ago, <laughs> um, is all of a sudden, you know, somehow worthy of being relegated to, you know, the, the dustbin of history. And I guess, you know, there's just this um, this self-assuredness on the part of the conservatives that it's just so obvious that Roe is wrong. And then what I find what I find so horrifying about that is how it writes out of the story. You know, not just the large large swaths of the American electorate who support Roe, um, but the people who stand to be harmed in a world without a constitutional right to abortion. I mean, you know, the sort of the plight of women um, who would have trouble accessing abortions in a world without and after Roe comes up not once in the majority opinion. It's just, it is, you know, it is not an attempt to be conciliatory at all. It is basically just a power grab. And how unusual is it for the Supreme Court to overturn what has basically been a a constitutional right for almost five decades? How unusual is that? (laughs) I mean, so depending on who you ask, you know, there are those who who would say it's a first. I mean, it depends on how you frame it, right? This is not the first time the Supreme Court has taken a right it has previously recognized and paired it back. You know, folks who know the court's history well, as you know, I know you guys do, um, right, would point to, for example, the economic rights that the court recognized in the early part of the 20th century and then sort of walked away from, you know, in the in the New Deal era. But man, we've never seen it like this, right? We've never seen a right that was such a deeply personal right, that, you know, was such a defining part of the autonomy of the individual that the Supreme Court has not just recognized, but repeatedly reaffirmed. And then all of a sudden, if this is where we're going, you know, and again, there's a bit of an assumption that this is where we're going, right? Just one day wiped off the books. And I guess I would just, I would have thought that a court that was going to take that step would have been maybe a little bit more um, willing to acknowledge how dramatic and remarkable a step that was for an undemocratic institution, right? For nine justices. And in this case, five justices appointed by presidents who, at least in a couple of their cases, never even won the national popular vote. (laughs) So, you know, I I just, this is the part of the opinion that I find most distressing, which is, you know, I think a lot of us expected the court was likely to overrule Rowan Casey this term, even if we hoped it wouldn't. But the notion that like this is um, as if it was inevitable, 
as opposed to a very close question that sharply divides America, um, is based on a rather skewed narrative of both how constitutional law operates and how abortion you know, currently sits as a public policy debate. So Alito tries to to counteract or anticipate this argument by saying, well, the court, you know, overturned Plessy versus Ferguson, right? And that the, he, he, he seems to want to reverse the argument here. Why, why is that different, Steve? You would think in this age of, of technology, we would have gotten over that. No problem, um, no problem. <laughs> so, I mean, I, this is, you know, I had really hoped that this is not an argument that was going to show up in the opinion because it came up in the oral argument. You know, the effort by conservatives to pitch the overruling of Roe as tantamount to the Supreme Court in Brown versus Board of Education overruling Plessy, I think just sort of reinforces my frustration with this approach, right? Which is that it just, you know, belittles and marginalizes um, the large chunk of the population that has come to rely deeply upon uh, this right. You know, I, I think if you really don't look that hard beneath the surface, yes, you can draw comparisons to the court in Brown overruling Plessy. But guys, Plessy didn't create a right. Um, Plessy denied a right, right? Plessy was the Supreme Court saying it is perfectly fine for states to have separate but equal facilities, you know, uh, which was especially horrifying in a context in which everyone knew, as Justice John Marshall Harlan pointed out in his dissent, that separate was not really equal. Um, and so the notion that this is parallel, when in fact it's literally the reverse, um, is just another example of how I think just oblivious, right, the draft majority opinion is to the to the arguments on the other side. Well, to me, it seemed disingenuous because what you said is sort of what undergrads would have known, right? Um, so, I mean, it, it, I, it seemed to me not even superficial. It seemed as if he was trying to make a point that he knew was wrong, actually. Well, I mean, Jeremy, I guess it depends on who you think the audience is. Um, so, you know, if you think the audience for this draft opinion or whatever the court ultimately does is folks like you or me, then of course I think that's right. Um, if you think the audience is just, you know, conservative politicians and their supporters who can just take lines out of context and just sort of use talking points that sound like they're, you know, responsive, then, you know, maybe that's mission accomplished. But, you know, I, I do want to say, I mean, at, at the risk of, of, of giving one sort of moment of pause, I mean, this is the first draft of the majority opinion that we're seeing. Um, you know, presumably some of this logic is going to be sharpened and hopefully um, developed a little more persuasively. Part of what happens at the court when you start to have concurrences and dissents circulated is that, you know, in some of those cases, the majority opinion is improved or at least amended um, to account for those arguments. So, you know, I, I do think we should withhold judgment at least a little bit on the final analysis that's going to come. But, oh boy, does it seem like this is a court that is chomping at the bit to, to overrule Roe and Casey, almost no matter what analytical path they take to get there. What do you think that does to the long-term legitimacy of the Supreme Court in the eyes of the public, but also in the eyes of uh, other parts of government that 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 rely on these decisions to make legislation and and, and policy? Yeah, I mean, this is, I think, one, one of the other parts of the draft opinion that I, that I found especially disingenuous was, you know, Justice Alito's suggestion in the draft that this returns the issue to the states. Um, so, you know, there are two problems with that. The first is the whole point of having constitutional rights is actually to take these issues away from the political branches um, as, as a matter of, you know, constitutional protection. But second and aside, I mean, do we really doubt that if and when Republicans control both chambers of Congress, 
and the White House that they're not going to pursue some kind of federal abortion ban um, if, you know, if this becomes the law of the land. I don't. Um, and so returning to the states is, again, like this misleading, disingenuous catchphrase meant to sound like it's a persuasive argument when it isn't. Um, Zachary, to, to your broader question, though, I mean, I, I think this is where I go back to the leak as being part of the story. I think this result and this leak right, are both incredibly ominous signs in the continuing erosion of the court's legitimacy. And what I think is especially striking is, you know, the court's legitimacy is eroding like with stunning speed, um, not uniformly, right? It's eroding much faster among Democrats than among Republicans for obvious reasons. But, you know, the, the, at least the, the, the majority opinion by Justice Alito just doesn't seem to care. Um, and that's of a piece with, you know, some of the speeches that the justices have given over the last, you know, 15, 16 months. Um, it's of a piece with some of the stuff we've seen in, you know, the the topic nearer and dearer to my heart, the shadow docket, these unsigned, unexplained orders in cases with increasingly broad impacts where, you know, there just seems to be a majority of justices who, when progressives and Democrats and liberals, you know, complain about the legitimacy of the court and the, and, and the court as an institution, they just sort of stick out their tongues and say, nana, nana, boo, boo. Um, and, and that's, again, why I come back to Chief Justice Roberts, because, you know, one of the remarkable things that has started to happen is he has started to break from the other five conservatives right, right. in cases where there has been some kind of institutional tension. Um, we've seen it primarily so far on the shadow docket. But, you know, this is where I'm going to come back to the timing. You know, is it possible that there's a, you know, fire breathing opinion from the non fire breathing John Roberts? That is actually part of why this is all coming out into the open now. So, uh, two questions on this, Steve. I mean, first, I, I see what you're saying, but I do think it was Alito as well as uh, Barrett and others who, during the last 16, 17 months, right, have been going around saying the court is not political. Don't say we're politicized. They've been trying to make the case uh, that was a presumption, at least many of us had at least a few years ago, right, that the court was somehow not as susceptible to the political winds in the way that Congress and, and the executive are. So, I mean, it seemed they wanted to make an opposite argument. Uh, and then the second question is, is I think, the one that's that's naturally provoked by your, your excellent comments, which is, they're members of the court. How could they not care about the legitimacy of the court? Yeah, I mean, I, I might, if you, yeah, I, I'll, let me take those in order. I mean, Jeremy, to the first, yes, I mean, Alito gave a speech at Notre Dame Law School, I think it was last September, um, you know, the sort of the first and to date most sustained defense of what he calls the court's emergency docket, you know, where he tried to suggest that um, efforts to criticize the court are, you know, sort of efforts by progressives to intimidate the justices. This is all kind of some some sort of campaign to scare them um, as if, you know, <laughs> we're the ones who control their legitimacy and we're the ones who actually control it. You're such a scary uh, guy, Steve. You're so scary. <laughs> Well, I, 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 I really, I was, I mean, I was struck by like the fairly tacit, um, or not even tacit, the fairly overt admission that like the criticisms are getting to them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you know, and sort of the thin skin that right. that suggests. But, but, but that aside, I mean, yes, I, I think you could, you could, you could put together a highlight reel of what we might call the, you know, we're not political hacks tour um, that the justices have been on, and you know, Justice Barrett. Um, in a speech at the Ronald Reagan Library, you know, last month, said, "Hey, you know, don't just assume we're political hacks. Like, read our opinions, look for the principles. You know, um, 
let the opinion speak for themselves. Well, shoot. I mean, if this is what the court is, <laughs> if this is the opinion we're getting, that's going to be the most significant overruling of precedent by the Supreme Court, certainly since at least Brown in 1954. Um, it's not an impressive read. And so I guess, you know, to, to your second question, Jeremy, I think this to me is and always has been, right? The difference between the sort of the Roberts conservatives and and the Trump conservatives. I mean, this this to me is establishment Republican politics versus Trumpism. Um, right, which is, you know, do the institutions matter or do, is all we care about the wins? And, you know, I think we've seen some contexts where the six conservatives on the court have broken into two camps on that score, where we've seen Kavanaugh and Barrett maybe lean a little bit more toward the chief on some of those points. But we've also seen contexts where it's been five to one. And, you know, it looks for all accounts like this is another one. And so I guess you know, th- there are two approaches, right? One is the, you know, for law to, to input, to implement a long-term conservative agenda, right? You need a legitimate court. And that's probably, you know, part of the John Roberts worldview. And then I think there's the sort of shorter term view, which is who cares about the long-term? We have the votes, we're here, we're dressed, let's go. And even among um, conservative justices who really were not Trump created, right? I mean, even, you know, Kavanaugh, Barrett, Gorsuch, Thomas, I mean, their roots are long before Donald Trump. They're long before the shift in the Republican Party. They're, they're Bush Republicans, right? All of them in some ways. Yeah, I mean, you know, so there, I mean, there's an interesting story to tell about what happened to Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh. Um, you know, I, I think there's an extent to which Thomas's politics were always closer to Trumpism than we might want to admit. Um, but, you know, I, I think whether, I, I mean, that, that to me is sort of yet another chapter in the whole sort of Trump was a symptom, not the disease yeah. part of our story. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I really, do, I mean, I, I, I wrote a piece um, last, last fall, um, right, as the justices were going on this, you know, we're not partisan hacks tour, um, where I said, guys, you know, stop complaining that it's your critics that are delegitimizing the court, right? It's what you're doing. Right. Um, and that some of your critics are actually trying to help save you. From yourselves, right? That that at least for me, and I, I know not all progressives feel this way, but at least for me, you know, I think an illegitimate court is actually a terrible thing for our polity. Um, even if that means I have to accept, you know, um, and push for, right, the sort of the the sanctity of decisions by six justices who I almost never agree with, right, um, right. But like, <laughs> it, that. that it shouldn't mean that you spend the entire time that you're in power burning down the place. And I just feel like the more that we have stuff like this happening, and again, right, not just the leak, but also the, you know, the sort of what the leak portends, the more it suggests that there really are, you know, five votes that just don't care. And, and I guess the the question I want to ask before we, we go to our final question about where we go from here, uh, on this issue of legitimacy, I, I, I think I know your answer, but I, I'd, I'd love to hear you articulate it, Steve. Why is legitimacy and the notion of the court being above politics, why is that anything more than a myth? I mean, some people would look and say, you know, look at the Bush v. Gore decision and look at the court during Lincoln's time and Jackson's time, you know, uh, that it's always been a political creature uh, mm-hmm. and that this is a kind of myth we created to justify certain things. Uh, but but in fact, this is just normal play. And right now you have one group in charge and they're just doing what they can. So I guess I would distinguish, Jeremy, and, and maybe not persuasively, but I would at least try to distinguish between whether the court's political and whether the court's legitimate, um, right? That, you know, 
anyone who suggests that the court is and should be above politics, I think, is just not taking the court's history seriously. The court has always been a political creature, um, you know, political sort of maybe in the small p sense. But I mean, you know, look at Marbury versus Madison, right? <laughs> um, right. right. You know, from the get go, you know, this has been a court, the sort of the seminal decisions of which have had deeply political valences. Um what has separate what what has preserved the court's legitimacy, I think, for a large chunk of that cycle, is that just because these decisions had political valences didn't mean they had partisan valences. So, you know, just case in point, right? When the Supreme Court in July 1974, you know, rules against Richard Nixon in the Watergate tapes case, a decision that basically precipitates Nixon's resignation because it forces out the smoking gun tape. Um, you know, the court was acting incredibly politically, right? It's an eight nothing deeply compromised opinion, um, you know, r- issued in the name of Chief Justice Warren Burger, but actually really written by <laughs> different justices, different places. Jeremy, that's to me deeply political, but also deeply institutionally powerful because the court was speaking with one voice because it was standing up to the president because it was doing so under the name of the chief justice that that very president had appointed. And and so I think, you know, it's a mistake in my view to equate the court's legitimacy with its apoliticalness. Um, To me, right, the court's legitimacy is a function of believing that when it's being political, it's not being partisan. Um, And I think what is increasingly problematic about almost every big thing this court does you know, whether it's in the abortion context, the voting rights context, right, the religion context, is that everything looks not just political, but partisan. Um, and that, you know, when you get the opinion, the draft opinion from Alito, that looks like it, you know, repeats talking points about the Republican platform against abortion, that doesn't do anything to dispel the concern. So right. Right. I guess, you know, to me, legitimacy is not, you know, the, the it is healthy for the court to be political. It's not healthy for the court to be partisan. And I think that's the line that we've increasingly right, blurred. Right, right. And I, and I guess the way I would articulate that, just saying what you've said a different way, is we shouldn't know what the decisions are going to be before they've heard the case, right? There should be some belief that there's some deliberative uh, process going on rather than simply taking the positions that are obvious beforehand, as is often the case on Congress. That's right. And, 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 and it shouldn't be the case that the best predictor of how the Supreme Court is going to rule is whether the decision helps Republicans or Democrats. Right, right, precisely, precisely. So if we're in that space now, which clearly is not a good space, uh, whether it's new or not new, it's certainly not a good space for convincing people that there is some objective, some somewhat objective place to go for the adjudication of our disputes that divide us in the other branches. If, if that's lost, where do we go from here? What do you see as the role of the court going forward? And, and what can we do to salvage a, a, um, a less partisan court. I mean, <laughs> at the risk of at the risk of saying things that are implausible, um, you know, this is why I think the court reform conversation um, that you know really started in the fall of 2020, um, and that you know then candidate now President Biden at least putatively committed to, was such an important moment and frankly a, a missed opportunity. Um, to have a conversation about the role of the court in our system that wasn't just tied to adding seats or imposing term limits. And so, you know, I, I think it's time to reopen that that can of worms and to have that conversation again. And even if we're not going to get anywhere on structural changes to the Supreme Court, 
you know, we can talk about the court's docket. We can talk about what kinds of cases it hears. We can talk about, you know, what we've given these unelected justices the power to do. Congress could, if it wanted to, right, reassert its power to limit the jurisdiction of the Supreme Court, something it used to do far more often and far more aggressively. But, you know, I also think, Jeremy, that this is part of a larger sort of asymmetry between Republican national politics and Democratic national politics, which is that the court has been a central part of the Republican Party's national agenda for a gener- for more than a generation now. And it just hasn't been a part of the Democratic national agenda. And I think, you know, the public reaction to the leak, the public reaction to the substance of the leak, the, the public reaction to the Supreme Court, you know, if it really does end up there, getting rid of abortion, ought to have a galvanizing effect that hopefully persuades Democrats to take the court seriously. Um, and to take it seriously as an electoral issue, you know, to run against the court, as I think now maybe the, you know, there's an opportunity to do in the, in the 2022 midterms. Um, and, you know, I think it's because that that's the, without a remarkable shift, without a completely unexpected shift in the composition of the court, you know, that's the way to, to force the court to moderate itself, right, is to put pressure on it from outside. And those pressures are going to come from the political branches, if at all. And from, you know, the American people, if at all. And the first step to the having those pressures is to having people care about them. Right, right. So, Zachary, do you care? Does this change the way you and um, your generation? I sort, I sort of feel like um, many in, in your generation who are politically engaged are, are so distracted by so many other important issues from the court that the court doesn't get the attention that Steve would want it to get. Yeah, to to be a hundred percent honest, I think it's very hard, at least for for my generation, to sort of to to, to see the the um, the uh, promise of the Supreme Court. I mean, on the one hand, we have the Obergefell decision, um, which was in many ways uh, the the first Supreme Court decision that my generation, or at least I, was sort of conscious of. This is the gay marriage, which decision. is an extremely hopeful and important moment in our history. But the past, the past uh, eight years or so since then, have uh, seemed to prove seemed seemed at least to to us to prove many of the uh, worst uh, cynics on these topics right. And I, I worry that maybe if this decision comes to fruition, that my generation will write off the Supreme Court as a sort of relic of the partisan politics that hopefully we will reject. Hmm. Hmm. And I, I don't think that would be a good thing. I think it would be very dangerous for our democracy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and I guess, Steve, to some extent, that's the position our colleague Sandy Levinson has long taken, right? That the court is is is, 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 a, <laughs> is an institutionally conservative place. Um, I don't know if you have a response to that. I'm just wondering, Steve, if you have any last thoughts on that, because I think what Zachary says makes sense. So, I, I mean, listen, I, I, this is where I think I actually end up on the wrong side of a lot of progressives, which is I, I understand exactly that mentality. And I think, you know, the, the danger to me is what do we, if we, if we as a party, if we as a polity, if we as a sort of generation are going to write off the Supreme Court, what do we do when we need it? Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and to sort of, not to put too fine a point on it, but, you know, imagine a, a disputed presidential election. That ends up in the Supreme Court, where only the court is in a position to resolve a clear political impasse. Where you know, but for judicial resolution, we actually might risk open conflict over the question of who is the actual, you know, duly elected next president of the United States. 
And, you know, there are folks who are going to say, well, the la- how'd that work out last time with Bush versus <laughs> right. Gore? Right. Um, and, and, you know, I will just say, um, I don't like what the court did. Um, I think Bush versus Gore is a really problematic decision. But as a matter of sort of avoiding civil war, it succeeded. <laughs> um, and that may be sort of pretty, a pretty low bar to expect the Supreme Court to clear. But if, we're, if, if in 2025 we're at a point where you know, the overwhelming majority of Democrats think the court is a completely illegitimate institution, then you know, what's going to happen if the election comes down to the court? Um, you know, what, what's going to happen? And indeed, what's going to happen if the court ends up throwing the election, whether legitimately or otherwise, right, to whoever the, Democrat, uh, the Republican candidate is? Um, and you know, I, just, I never would have thought, Jeremy, 10, 15, 20 years ago, five years ago, that we would so quickly get to this point where the Supreme Court's credibility really was, you know, in some pretty important respects for a whole lot of people, hanging by a thread. Um, and you know, I'm, I'm as much as I understand the temptation on the part of so many to just cut that last thread. You know, I worry about what happens when you can't get it back. Yeah, I think that's compelling, Steve. I think our system depends upon having a court that, although controversial at times, um, has the ability to convince a large number of Americans that it is playing fair. I think that's what we mean by legitimacy, that it's playing fair and that both sides have a chance, even if one side doesn't get what it wants uh, quite often. And, And if there's no longer a perception of fairness, um, then it's very hard to imagine that branch of government working in our system, and it's hard to imagine our system working where we need all three ban- branches to play play that role. Um, and so I think you're right. And uh, one of the things I find so compelling about your work, Steve, is that I think it's motivated by that passion, by that principle, which we need more than need more than ever. So um, thank you for sharing your time with us, uh, Steve Laddick, today. Thanks, Jeremy. I mean, I think I, I increasingly worry that I'm going to be the last one. I'm, I'm going to be the last, you know, progressive defending the Supreme Court as an institution. I'll, I'll, so I'll be, be there with you. I don't know if historians <laughs> count, but I'll be I'll, I'll, I'll be there. I'll be there with you. To, to me, the, you know, the, the court holds a special place for the few times it has stepped yep. forward and done the right yep. thing. Yep. So yep. thank you again, Steve. Thank you, Zachary, for your poem. And thank you most of all to our loyal listeners for joining us for this week of This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts ITS Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harris Coudini. Stay tuned for a new episode every week. You can find This is Democracy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. See you next time.